certainly not irrational for people who supported the Women's March and who feel targeted by Farrakhan's rhetoric, whether they're Jewish or gay or feminist. They might decide that they don't want to support the Women's March anymore because of the way that they handled this. Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Just over a year ago, in response to the inauguration of Donald Trump, the leaders of the Women's March organized what may have been the largest demonstration in American history. More than three million people marched in cities across America, with over a million more joining in around the world. The activists who led the march, like Linda Sarsour and Tamika Mallory, haven't really ever stopped marching. They're active on social media, and they've helped lead more demonstrations as they work to keep their movement going. But this exposure has uncovered flaws in their leadership. Now, Mallory has come under fire for attending a service led by the leader of the Nation of Islam, or NOI, Louis Farrakhan. She sat there as Farrakhan said many deeply anti-Semitic things, including, the powerful Jews are my enemy. When they were asked to denounce Farrakhan for his anti-Semitism, not to mention his long history of misogyny and homophobia, the Women's March leaders didn't do so. Mallory and Sarsour even defended him at first, before their group finally put out a statement. In it, the Women's March rejected anti-Semitism, but did not denounce Farrakhan. Does this stance endanger the long-term success of the Women's March? Dialing in from a Washington recording studio is Adam Serwer, senior editor at The Atlantic, who just recently interviewed Tamika Mallory. He has helped explain why these leaders of a broad, progressive movement would want to be connected with someone like Louis Farrakhan. Great to have you with us, Adam. Uh, Thank you for having me. I've seen pieces defending Louis Farrakhan and ones slamming him, but I think your essay had nuance that no one else's did. You were totally clear about his anti-Semitism, but you helped me understand where his support comes from. Can you do the same for our listeners? So I grew up when I was a teenager. Louis Farrakhan was sort of at his height as a as a leader, um, which was very disturbing for me, you know, as, as a person who is both black and Jewish. But something that I didn't understand was that a lot of his support came from basically the kind of services that NOI performs, particularly in impoverished black communities in terms of dealing with crime or helping people come out of prison and avoid behaviors uh, that may have landed them there. And I think that that from the outside, from outside the black community, I think that kind of thing is really opaque. I think, you know, mostly what people hear about Louis Farrakhan is his anti-Semitism, which is very real um, and which is also a major part of his marketing strategy. But I think for the most part, uh, the anti-Semitism probably hurts him more than it helps him uh, on balance. And most of the goodwill towards the NOI comes from their history of uh, helping particularly marginalized people, people who've been in prison, people who are dealing with high rates of crime in their neighborhood, uh, and not, I think, from their bigotry towards Jews. Is that where Tamika Mallory's connection to Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam comes from? Right. So Tamika Mallory, um, the head of the Women's March, who you know was basically refusing and still refuses to condemn Farrakhan or condemn his remarks, although she said she disagrees with them, 
she told me that she came in into contact with the Nation of Islam after her son's father was murdered. And in particular, the women of the Nation of Islam were very supportive of her as a victim of street violence. And so I think that for her, she felt as though condemning the nation would be a kind of personal betrayal of those women who helped her. Now, I personally think that's the wrong way to look at it. And I think a lot of people watching that situation, even those who may empathize with her, probably think that's the wrong way to look at it and think she could have been more forceful in her condemnation and distancing from the Nation of Islam. But the organization's appeal, in in her view, it does not have to do with anti-Semitism. She says she disagrees with that and has more to do with the kind of role that they play in these communities that are dealing with a lot of violence. What's Farrakhan's appeal for those Women's March leaders who don't have that, that kind of history that Tamika Mallory has? Is it, are they just standing by Mallory or why are they also holding back uh, their condemnation? Well, I actually don't know that. They might be closing ranks around Mallory, but I didn't interview them, so I, I can't say what their position on it is. I can say that, you know, while I, you know, empathize with Mallory's reasons, I think it's certainly not irrational for people who supported the Women's March and who feel targeted by Farrakhan's rhetoric, whether they're Jewish or gay uh, or, or feminist. Uh, you know, they might decide that they don't want to support the Women's March anymore because of the way that they handled this. And I think that's something they're going to have to deal with. So because of the influence that Farrakhan has on his followers, from time to time, we hear about Democratic politicians meeting with him, him endorsing uh, certain politicians. Republicans have always been eager to jump on them for that, as we saw during President Obama's uh, first campaign in 2008. Um, There's also this famous exchange from a Democratic primary debate that year where Hillary Clinton calls out Obama for denouncing Farrakhan but not rejecting him. Uh, And Obama kind of settles that issue by saying, fine, then I reject him and I denounce him. Should we be demanding that politicians and public figures both reject and denounce Farrakhan? Or are we getting too caught up in this and ultimately giving him the media attention that he craves? So I think both can be true. I think there are uh, perfectly good reasons for politicians to uh, reject and denounce Farrakhan. He's anti-Semitic, he's anti-gay, he's sexist. Um, At the same time, uh, the fixation on Farrakhan is definitely a part of his media strategy. He says these things to get attention. Obviously, uh, he first came to national prominence uh, in the aftermath of Jesse Jackson's Town scandal, where he started saying anti-Semitic things in defense of Jesse Jackson. So he's well aware of how the feedback loop works, where he, where he sparks an outrage. He comes under, a, uh, you know, an avalanche of criticism, and he hopes that people will uh, rally around him because they feel like he's being maybe unfairly treated or disproportionately attacked. I will say that Farrakhan, while he still maintains some influence, Uh, He's far from his peak, and he uh, is not an elected official. There are obviously some Democratic politicians who represent poor working-class black communities who feel like they don't want to antagonize the people who may feel warmly towards him. But the Nation of Islam is not fielding candidates for federal office. They're not making policy. And I think uh, people do need to put that in perspective. So what would you say with regards to people like Representative Danny Davis from Illinois who also seemed initially unwilling to condemn Farrakhan. This, this is an elected official, right? He himself is not a member of the Nation of Islam. But, but what about people who do kind of stand by him or accept that endorsement? I mean, I personally think it's irresponsible and wrong 
but <laughs> fair enough. I wasn't, you know, plenty of people have said that. My value added to this situation was showing people what they didn't already know, in part from my reporting, in part from my personal experience, and in part from interviewing Mallory. You know, there's no shortage of people pointing out that Farrakhan is a bad guy and people shouldn't be associating with him. Certainly true. Adam, in your interview with Mallory, she outlined how damning it can be for a black political leader or someone in in public life to be labeled uh, an anti-Semite. On the one hand, you know, she says she doesn't hate Jews. So, okay, fine. She's not an anti-Semite. But after the 2016 election, there's been a lot of reflecting on what it means when people who say they aren't racist still hold certain views that racists might also hold. Uh, What does it mean that she is kind of willing to tolerate anti-Semitism in someone who she views as a leader? Should we be drawing any kind of comparison there? So I think a lot of people made this comparison when they read the piece. They said, oh, she sounds like a Trump supporter saying she's not really racist. I think the context is slightly different, but I do think that there is a kind of parallel there with her in terms of her reaction, being very concerned about being labeled an anti-Semite, maybe even before she was concerned about the substance of her remarks. Um, At the same time, I think, you know, in that piece, she does show a willingness to listen to criticism and change her behavior. You know, she said, you know, there's an anecdote she told me uh, about how she said something basically about how Jews are good with money. And one of her Jewish colleagues told her that that wasn't appropriate. And she said she realized, you know, that's that's a stereotype. It's like saying black people like watermelon and fried chicken. And she says that now when people say things like that, she corrects them. So I think, you know, there's a distinction there. One, in that it is true that for black leaders being labeled an anti-Semite can be very damaging, in part, I think, not because people are are, are so warmly affectionate towards Jews, but because anti-Semitic can read to people who are white and not Jewish as Um, anti-white. But at the same time, you know, she uh, was willing to at the very least, take the criticism and change her behavior as a result, which is something I'm not sure that we necessarily see from a lot of the people who are saying that they're very offended by being called racist. That's such an interesting point that you're saying that anti-Semitic can read as anti white. It, it almost turns Jews into, you know, pawns in this kind of situation where people who, for politically motivated reasons, might be coming at us from, from both sides and, and using us as uh, a way to score points. Right. I mean, I think, you know, if you're outraged about Farrakhan, but you didn't have any strong feelings about Steve Bannon, whose website was, in his words, a platform for the alt-right, uh, and which published a piece that was essentially edited by white nationalists, you know, if you're upset about someone like that who's very close to power, you're not upset about him being in the White House, then I, I think it's hard for me to take your opinions on Farrakhan seriously. But I also think that it's reflective of that dynamic right there, right? Which is, you know, a lot of people who claim to be offended by Farrakhan's anti Semitism actually don't care about that so much as his anti whiteness. But it sounds better if you're uh, you're objecting on behalf of Jews who are you know, a historically persecuted minority. Point well taken. If we can get personal for a moment, uh, you wrote so movingly uh, about how your life as a black Jew gives you perspective on Farrakhan. Can you tell us more about your background and what it's like to live at the intersection of this story? So I was born in Washington, D.C. My father was uh, worked for the State Department. And so we moved around a lot. But 
you know, my mother, my mother's African-American. She was Christian when I was born. However, I was bar mitzvahed. My reform synagogue allowed me to be bar mitzvahed, despite the fact that my mother wasn't Jewish. My mother later converted. There was, what I am told is that there was a big fight between my mother and my paternal grandmother about whether or not she would convert before she married my father. And my mother put her foot down and my grandmother, they eventually reached the truce that me and my brother would be raised Jewish, even if she didn't have to convert, which worked out well for everyone. Growing up, I, I, I knew very few black Jews, but and this is, I guess, a little weird, but an entire branch of my mother's family in Savannah, Georgia, actually converted to Judaism. Oh, wow. Uh, so I guess in some ways it was less weird later in life, in part because I had this whole family of black Jews to look to. You know, they're wonderful. It's a big family. I love visiting them. I'm very close with them. Uh, And so I think, you know, I mean, that was a comfort. I think the difficult thing was when I was growing up, there was a, particularly in D.C., because D.C., when when I was growing up, was a mostly black city, there were were a lot of conversations about distinctions between anti-Semitism and racism that often devolved into a sort of oppression Olympics about which was worse, the Middle Passage or the Holocaust, that just weren't particularly productive. As I got older, like I said, those two identities didn't really seem to be as in conflict as they once were, in part, I think, because of my family, but in part also because when you're a kid, figuring out who you are is an extremely difficult and painful process, and things can seem crazier and bigger and and more difficult than they actually are. A lot of liberal Jews worry uh, about their status uh, today in progressive spaces. Uh, Often, especially on college campuses, Jewish students are called upon to denounce uh, Israel as a kind of prerequisite to being involved in any uh, progressive activism. Is there a future for Jews in the progressive movements uh, in our country? Well, I'm going to express what I think is probably an unpopular opinion on this subject, which is that... If you're going to ask Jews whether they'd rather be supporters of Israel or members of the progressive movement, I think most young Jews are going to want to be members of the progressive movement. Right. No, I I guess my point is, why should that be a binary choice? Well, I think it's a binary or why is it becoming a binary choice? Yeah, I think so. So, for example, if you're someone growing up in the liberal Jewish movements today, you know, a reform Jew, a conservative Jew, you've likely heard your rabbi talk uh, movingly about tikkun olam, this uh, imperative to repair the world as, um, you know, a a high moral imperative uh, in Judaism. And, And you've just as likely heard your rabbi talk about the importance of standing with Israel. And I think that young Jews don't see any conflict Uh, in those two parts of their identity until they get to campus. And then people say, well, what do you mean? You can't oppose the oppression of black people in this country if you support the oppression of Palestinians in Israel. So um, I grew up. So, again, the the context for me is very relevant here. Sure. Um, You know, I I went to a reform synagogue. Um, It's a synagogue that to this day has an American flag on one end of the Bema and an Israeli flag on the other. But it's a very progressive synagogue. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, when I in the 90s, you know, there was a lot of hope for the peace process. I mean, I, I remember, you know, People in Israel were thinking that Bibi Netanyahu's career was over. Uh, There was going to be some kind of deal. There was going to be a Palestinian state. Um, And I think that was the sort of liberal Jewish-American perception of of where that was going. We're now 20 years out, and 
the situation has fundamentally changed in terms of Israel's rightward drift, in particular in terms of Netanyahu's relationship with the Republican Party and his antagonism towards Obama. And I think that for the progressive movement, I think the fact is that Democrats have watched Netanyahu trash their president. They've watched the Israeli government's rightward tilt and, you know, all but complete rejection of the peace process. And I think it's where in the 90s, it might have been much easier to reconcile liberalism and support for Israel because uh, there was going to be two states for two people and that both people were going to have a right to national self-determination. I think now that contradiction is much more difficult to reconcile. And that's not simply because people on campus are feeling more strident about pro-Palestinian activism. That's because of the political situation in Israel. Look, it's a good point, Adam. Uh, I meet with uh, Jewish students all the time uh, who want to advocate for Israel, and they are relieved, excited even, when I tell them that advocating for Israel does not obligate them to uh, advocating for a particular government policy, that they can support the existence of the Jewish state love the state of Israel uh, without um, supporting any particular government policies. But of course, that takes us down an entirely uh, different line of conversation, one which maybe we can uh, explore together sometime in the future. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Food. Good for the Jews? I know what you're thinking. Of course food is good for the Jews. And you're right. For as long as there have been Jews on this planet, we've been eating things. But if food is a key means of understanding Jewish history, and it is, then we're well served by the latest project out of Tablet Magazine. Over at 100jewishfoods.tabletmag.com, you can click through 100 different Jewish foods from A for Adafina, the stew eaten by Jewish victims of the Spanish Inquisition, clinging to remnants of their Jewish identity, all the way down to Yemenite soup at the other end of the alphabet. Sure, bagels and lox make the list, as do matzah, matzah balls, matzah brai, and mina de matzah, the meat matzah lasagna popular in Sephardic homes over Passover. But there are also foods featured that don't fit the typical mass-market Jewish narrative. Like, for instance, those traditional Jewish desserts, Hydrox cookies, Entenmann's donuts, and Stelladora Swiss fudge each of which make the list and none of which would be recognizable to the Jews of Anatevka. Kishka, margarine, and schmaltz may not be great for our cholesterol, but this new attempt to understand and explain the many different Jewish histories that come together here in this cholent pot we call American Jewry, that certainly is good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org Passport. Send your comments and questions to Passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us.
Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is Scott Reitherman. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.